Turn with me to Genesis 1:27. We're going to be in several different uh, passages of Scripture today, but we're going to start there. Um, as Alan said, tomorrow is Memorial Day. I'm glad he mentioned the sacrifice that others have made for us. You know, no one is more equipped to understand sacrifice and being indebted to someone else than a believer in Jesus Christ. Because if you're a Christian, it's not because you're better than anyone else. It's not because you're better at following the rules or you've, you've done a better job of avoiding evil. It's not because uh, you're good-looking or smart or intelligent or, well, smart and intelligent are the same thing, isn't it? It's not because of anything you've done. It's because of what has been done for you. It's because Jesus, our God in human flesh, laid down his life for us. And so we owe him everything. And that means every life is important. And we've been in this, this series about these contentious issues in our culture, and we've seen how being a citizen of heaven, as it says we are in, in Philippians 3.20, being a citizen of heaven means that we need to be different. We represent a different kingdom and a different king. And so part of that is we will never quite fit in with any side on any issue. We will never quite fit comfortably on the political left or the political right. And some of us may lean more one way or the other, but we'll never quite fit because we're, we're coming at it from a different angle. And so sometimes we're going to be irritating to people who come at the things from the political left. And sometimes we're going to be a thorn in the flesh of the political right because we're going to say things they don't like. At the same time, if we're following Christ, we should be compelling. We should be engaging. We should be people who they look at and say, I wish I had some of what you have. Because we have more than the cookie cutter answers that political parties and ideologies offer. And so the issue we're going to talk about today, by the way, starting next week, we're going to look at the book of Philippians. We're talking about joy all through June and July. So get ready. I'm excited about that. But one of the issues that defines us, one of the issues where we should stand out is on the issue of the value of human life. See, one of the things that should set us apart is we believe and we know that every single person on earth matters because they matter to God. And so they should matter to us. And the Bible is very clear on this. From the very beginning, first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1.27, says, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. In Genesis 9, verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. God wants a nation to be righteous enough to value human life. And so you don't take human life casually or, 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 or carelessly. Human life matters, and God cares when a human life is extinguished. God cares how we treat the least of these. In other words, the citizens who are overlooked, the people, the members of our society who don't seem to have rights or don't seem to have an advocate. God is their advocate there's a famous story in the book of Genesis, most of you know of, where two of the great cities of the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah, are both destroyed by the wrath of God. Literally, fire and brimstone come down out of heaven. You thought that was just a cliche, but it actually happened. These two cities are destroyed in a night. And a lot of Christians think, well, it's because there was sexual deviancy going on in those cities. And there was, Genesis tells that, but that's not the reason God destroyed those cities. See, Ezekiel is the only prophet that tells us what was in God's mind at the time. He says, he says in Ezekiel 16, 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. 
God is on the side of the ignored, the despised, the overlooked, the oppressed, and He will have their back. Maybe not as quickly as we think, but it will happen. If you, if you mistreat someone who does not have rights, God, God will punish you for it. Now, when we hear the idea of the value of human life, we instantly leap to the contemporary issue of abortion. And that is one of the most contentious issues in our culture. And so we need to talk about that this morning. And I, I need to say from the outset, I know there are strong feelings about this, but like I've said in all of these sermons, if you disagree with me and, and you think I've misused the Bible, come talk to me. I, I'd love to talk it out. I'm not going to be offended or angry that you're disagreeing with me. And if I've misused the Bible, I need to know it. And also... This is an issue that that hits people in a very personal way. The statistics say one in four American women will have an abortion by the time they're 45. One in four. That's actually better. It used to be one in three. And so chances are there are women in this very room who've experienced that. And I want you to know right from the outset, no one here judges you. You are not condemned. We're all broken people. We're all broken in various ways, and that's why we need the grace of God. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about later. Because the truth is, when you talk about the value of human life, we're not just talking about unborn children. We need to start there. We need to see what Scripture actually says about that and, and, and how we should stand. But that's not the end of the issue. So let's start there. When we talk about this issue, obviously people who come at this from a different angle have a hard time understanding why this is such a big deal for us. Why do we believe that abortion is wrong? Why do we believe it is a taking of human life? And one of the arguments that is presented is, listen, you're talking about the body of an individual human woman. How dare a government say you can or can't do this with your body? How dare a government tell you what you can do with your individual health care? Obviously, there are people in this room, I'd say probably a lot of them, who would resent it if the government said this is what you can or can't do with your guns. So how much more would we resent intrusion onto our own physical body? And I hear that argument. There's also the argument that says it's wrong for a group to impose their moral will on the rest of society. It's wrong to legislate morality. So what is the argument, really? Where do we stand? See, what it all hinges on for us as believers in Christ is, is the fetus in the womb a human life? Is what is inside a pregnant woman's stomach, is that a human life or is it something else? See, Scripture answers the question for us. As Christians, the answer is clear from God's Word. Psalm 139, verse 13. We read this passage in the first sermon this, this, this year about how we are all created with a purpose. But it says, you, meaning God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It speaks of God's meticulousness and how He knows us so well from the very beginning. He intentionally made us the way we are. In Jeremiah 1.5, God is talking to the prophet Jeremiah, a young man at the time. He says, before you were in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So before he even emerges from his mother's womb, Jeremiah already has a purpose for his life. God's already got a plan for him. I love the story in Luke chapter 1, 39 through 45, where Mary has just found out she's pregnant with Jesus. And she goes to visit her older cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant for the first time too. She's a woman in her middle years. She's never been able to have kids. 
So Mary travels to the hill country of Judea to, to share good news with her, with her cousin. And as soon as she walks through the threshold and greets her cousin, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb, who we know today as John the Baptist, leaps inside of her. Now, all of you ladies who've, who've given birth before, you know that feeling. You know when that child feels like it's jumping out of your skin. I, as a man, will never know that feeling. Thank God I will never know that feeling. But you know that feeling and, and what it means in Elizabeth's case. She instantly knows, wait a second, the Holy Spirit just entered into my child. The Holy Spirit just took possession of my unborn child and he recognized the voice of the, mo- of the mother of his Messiah. That child had such a, a, a sense of identity and humanity to the Lord. The Lord infused him with his Holy Spirit before he was ever even born. Besides all those things, there's the information in Scripture that tells us over and over again that God will not hold us unaccountable, will hold us accountable when we shed human blood, innocent human blood. Exodus 23, 7, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, 2 Kings 23, 3 through 4. You can look those up on your own. There are many others that talk about how a nation that sheds innocent blood will pay. A people who don't protect the innocent will face the wrath of God. And what can be more innocent than a child that hasn't even been born yet? Now you might say, okay, but what if I don't accept the authority of Scripture? Well, beyond Scripture, we can say that biology tells us that what's inside the mother's womb is not just a part of her anatomy, that the child is not a growth. By the time a woman realizes she's pregnant, that child already has a heartbeat that can be measured, already has brain activity that can be detected by an EEG. It has its own unique DNA strand. And friends, listen, every year, here is Memorial Day weekend when we remember the people who've given their lives for us in combat. Do you know that if you totaled all those people, all those soldiers, all those sailors, all those service people, from Bunker Hill to Fallujah, from the start of our nation till today, every person who's died in an an American war, that number, approximately that number of unborn children die every year through abortion. That's staggering. That's every year. And 93% of those are elective. They're not because of rape. They're not because of incest. They're not because of a danger to the life of the mother. And I realize that none of these are easy or, or, or simple choices, that, that women feel an intense sense of pressure. There's a reason why they make this choice. But that's another part of the, of the problem. The women who go through this are traumatized. Studies show that women post-abortion experience high rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, a suicide rate three times that of the general public. And as for this idea that morality can't be imposed legally, think about it. Every law on our books is an attempt to impose a moral code on people. The, the law that says you, sh- you can't murder, that you can't steal, that you can't rape, that you can't uh, engage in human trafficking, that you can't... Any law on our books is a moral judgment by our society Whether I agree with it or not, I am duty-bound to follow it. See, the good news is the rate of abortions in our society is decreasing. 
It's decreasing very rapidly. And, and I think most people agree it's not because of any new arguments. It's not because pro-life people have been especially persuasive. It's because of technology. Specifically, it's because of ultrasound technology. Because it's getting more and more advanced. We're more and more able to see the child in the womb. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When my kids were being born 14 and 20 years ago, um, we'd go in for those ultrasounds, and I'd be all excited, and I'd look on that screen, and, and you know, it could have been a unicorn in there. I don't know. It was, something was moving around, but I don't know what it was. And now, and now the images are becoming more and more clear so that you can see hands and feet and face, mouth, eyes, nose. Fingers, toes. And as people begin to, to see and learn more about the child in the womb, we're becoming less and less willing to see them discarded. And maybe some people think that maybe somewhere down the road, maybe two generations from now, our descendants will look back on this era the way we look back at the era of slavery. They'll look back at us the way we look back at our ancestors who thought it was perfectly natural that there'd be one race that was destined for slavery and we were just fine with that. And, and they'll say to us, like we say to them, how could you have been that way? What was wrong with you that you didn't see the wrongness of this, the tragedy of this? And I hope they're right. But what if they are? See, our goal cannot be simply to get the right people on the Supreme Court so Roe versus Wade is overturned. Our goal cannot simply be to change laws on the books because I've got news for you. If you make it illegal, women are still going to have abortions. They're just going to be illegal and they're just going to be more dangerous. There's still going to be unwanted children. In fact, there's going to be more of them being allowed to be born. Just changing the law doesn't settle anything. In fact, the parallels to the slavery issue are very, very apt. One of the great tragedies our country made, sorry to delve into history so deep, but just stick with me. One of the great, great tragedies of our nation's history is, yes, we lived with the horrible abomination of slavery for a long time, and then finally we changed the law, and then we didn't do anything else. We left these people with no resources. We said, okay, you're free, but they had nothing. Is it any wonder we're still dealing with racial division all these years later? We can't make the same mistake on this issue. We have to care about everybody in this issue. We have to realize that every life matters. and It's not just enough to change a law. Guess what? All the root causes that lead to abortion will still be there if we change the law. There will still be poverty. There will still be broken families. Good grief, there's still going to be irresponsible idiot men in this world. And there's still going to be a lack of understanding in society of what matters most, of what a life is worth, of what life is for. So what is our job? Our job, our goal, is that every person should matter equally to society because every person matters to God. That's got to be our goal. Beyond legislation, in fact, that, that's, that's not even the most important thing. It's not even close to the most important thing. The most important thing is to show the world the value of each human life. So how do we do that? I, I don't know everything, but here's what I do know. I know, number one, we need to address the root causes. We've got to care about the things that lead women to make these choices. You know, one of the, one of the charges that people throw at the pro-life movement is you're not really pro-life. You're actually just pro-birth. 
You don't really care about people. You just care that babies get born. I, I saw a cartoon a while back, an editorial cartoon in the paper, and yet, yeah, you know, there's this actual thing made out of paper where they print news. Did you know that? It's, it's amazing. So anyway, in this newspaper, it's called a newspaper. In this newspaper, there was this, there was this editorial cartoon, and it showed a, a pregnant woman. And she's standing, and there's this angry mob standing next to her, and they're screaming at her, and they're saying, how dare you think of aborting your child? And the next panel shows that same woman. Now she's holding a baby, and the same angry mob is saying, how dare you expect us to provide for your food and your education and your health care? And so, you know, that's, that's that argument right there that, okay, you don't want me to have an abortion, but you don't want to help me with the problems that led me to first seek one. Because here I am, I've, I've got nothing. I'm, I'm a single woman. I, am I supposed to get a job? Okay, but what if I can't get a job that pays enough for me to put my children in daycare? Where am I? Who's going to help? What's going to happen? And I realize, and this is, this is where I say, we're going to be an annoyance to both the political right and the political left because the political right jumps in at this point and says, hey, you can't, you can't redistribute wealth. That's unjust and it doesn't actually help anybody. It just enslaves them. Okay, what are we going to do about that? Because when I read the scriptures, I don't read a God who says, I line up with the right or the left. In fact, I read a God who's equally offensive to both sides. God's really not concerned about our political distinctions. What I read in scripture, when I, when I think about that woman and her baby, I read about a God who says, I don't care how you vote, you better take care of her and him. Because in the Old Testament, it says any nation that doesn't take care of the widow, the orphan, the alien, the impoverished is a nation that's going to face my judgment. In the New Testament, Jesus says, if you're really my followers, you're going to take care of the least of my children because when you take care of them, you've taken care of me. And if you're not willing to take care of one of the least of my children, if you don't care what happens to that woman and her child, you're probably not actually one of mine. And on the day of judgment, you'll find yourself with the goats separated from my love forever. God takes this seriously. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how righteous you think you are. If you don't have compassion for people who are struggling, you're not really his child. And the thing is, if we actually follow Jesus, and if we actually do the things we're called to do, then the cartoon that I read would never be written. Because no one would think to say, oh, these people who care so much about unborn children don't actually care about life. They'd see evidence in us that nobody cares more for the impoverished. Nobody cares more for the single mother. Nobody cares more for the unwanted child than the people who call themselves Christians. That's the way the world should work. Secondly, if we want to be truly pro-life, we've got to love women who've had abortions. We've got to love those women. They've got to know that there's acceptance here. And as I said at the beginning, one in four is a big number. And that means there's probably women in this room who are struggling with the same kind of issues I talked about earlier. The same kind of guilt, the same kind of shame. And you need to know that God's grace is sufficient for you, just like it's sufficient for me. In other words, God still loves you with the exact same love. God still has a plan for you that's spectacular. And none of that changes with any decision you make or I make. And so let me just say that if, if you're in that position and you want to talk to someone, if you write me a note, 
on your welcome card and drop it in the offering plate or hand it to me, or if you send me an email this week, I'm not going to send some man to talk to you, but I will, I will set you up with a woman who's been through what you've been through, who understands, who can pray for you and with you and give you the support you need. So that's, that's an offer right there. You are loved. Your life matters. Number three, we need to be consistent. So my dad was sent by the U.S. Army to Vietnam in 1969, and he did his tour of duty, and thank God he came home alive. A lot of people didn't. But when he came back, he still had a year to go in his, uh, in his enlistment. And so the Army, in their infinite wisdom, sent him to the Presidio in San Francisco. And when he got there, one of the things they told him was, Sergeant Berger, you need to know that when you go off base, you take your wife out to eat or you go shopping or whatever. When you go off base, don't wear your uniform. Don't wear your fatigues. This is the Bay Area. This is 1970. You don't want people to know you're in the Army. So I, all these years later, I never served, but because of what my dad experienced of going away to, get, to put his life on the line for a year and then coming home to a nation that didn't seem to appreciate him, I'm thankful whenever I see people who are appreciative of those in uniform. That's the way we should be. We should take care of those people. We should bless them. We should thank them. Having said that, though, let me tell you another story my dad told me. So not long ago, my dad was coming out of his church, the church where my parents go, and saw a bumper sticker on a car in the church parking lot. The bumper sticker, you may have seen this one before, it said, God bless our troops, especially our snipers. And my dad called me and he talked to me about that. And he said, one of the first things he said was, okay, only someone who's never actually seen warfare can be that lighthearted about it, can celebrate it, can think it's funny. Because even the people who come home in one piece, they're never the same. Even my dad, thank God, my dad was safe all that year. He wasn't the same guy when he came home. It affects you, it changes you, sometimes in, in terrible ways. Do you know that in any war, even the most just war you can define, there are thousands upon thousands of people who are just innocent bystanders, civilians, who get killed. And even an enemy soldier is made in the image of God. So, are there times when warfare is necessary to prevent greater evil from occurring? Yeah, I think there are. Have there been times in our nation's history when we fought wars that probably weren't necessary, that probably weren't just? Yeah, I think so. Should we, as God's people, support our troops? Absolutely. Should we ever be seen as pro-war, as celebrating, as excited, as laughing about the death of someone else, even in a quote-unquote enemy nation? No. This is what I mean when I say be consistent. If if every human life is of equal value, that includes people in other countries that we happen to be at odds with. Number four, support adoption and foster care. One of the things I love about this church is there's, there are multiple families in this church that have adopted children. There are families in this church that are, are getting ready to adopt or foster children. They should be supported. That is, that is a high calling. They're doing God's work. I mean, one of, the, one of the motifs of salvation in Scripture is adoption. All of us have been adopted. If you're a Christian, all of us have been adopted into God's family. We're not natural-born children of the King. He brought us in by adoption. 
So we should be especially supportive of those of us who choose to make that decision. Because it's hard work raising a child that you didn't bear. And that child needs special care. And so we should support those couples, those people who make that decision. And some people in this room need to pray about maybe God's leading you to adopt or to foster. Again, that is the work of God. That is, that is the hero, those are the heroes of the pro-life movement right there. Number five, love the rejected and forgotten people all around us. This is the part we can do every single day because every one of us knows people. Sometimes we just don't see them, and that's the problem. Nobody sees them. So ask the Lord, give me the eyes to see the people who are rejected, the people who are forgotten, the people who are neglected, the people who are just not seen, who are invisible. Help me to see the bullied kid in my class at school. Help me to see that family in my neighborhood who's obviously from another country. The elderly person whose kids never seem to visit. My own relative who's in a nursing home. The disabled person, mentally or physically disabled, who everybody just sort of passes by, doesn't even look in the eyes. Pray on a regular basis. Lord, help me to see them. Help me to do what I can to show them you matter to me. You matter because you matter to God. And then finally, love the lost. See, this is the most important thing we can do to be truly pro-life, and that is love people who don't believe what we believe. Love people who are not in our family, not part of our tribe. And our biggest problem, I'll tell you right now, our biggest problem as, in terms of, of valuing human life is self-righteousness. Our biggest problem is self-righteousness. Don't everybody say amen at once, okay? But it's true, and you know it. And it goes back to the first sermon I preached in this series where we talked about political polarization because if there's somebody who disagrees with us on an issue that we find very emotionally important, then we no longer see them as a human. We see them as an enemy, as, as an adversary to be overcome. We don't care about their existence anymore. We don't care about what happens to them eternally. And that must not happen. So... There was a time when I used to drive a long way to church, not this church, but another church. And, and so I got into listening to podcasts just to pass the time. And I, I, one of the podcasts I used to listen to, it was, it was people telling their personal stories live on stage. And some of them were really good stories. Problem was, this wasn't a Christian podcast, and so most of the people telling the stories let's just say came from a very different worldview from mine. So I heard some really challenging things, some things I really passionately disagreed with. Sometimes, in fact, Christians were the bad guys in the stories. So one day I'm, I'm listening to this podcast, and it's, it's being told by this woman. She and her husband couldn't have children, and so they decided to adopt. And they heard about this agency where they send you to Africa and you spend a week with a, a child that they've selected for you. And at the end of that week, you take the child home and the child becomes your child. And so they signed up for this trip. And all their friends said, listen, you guys, you need to know that 
Christians love this kind of stuff, and so you're probably going to be on a trip with a bunch of Christians, and so you're going to feel really uncomfortable. And that made them nervous because they were both ex-military, really rough around the edges. You know, she had the real short haircut, and she, they both had a lot of tattoos and piercings, and they both tended to use a lot of impolite language, if you know what I mean. And so they got on the plane and, and started meeting people, and, and as she said, her heart sank because immediately everybody looked like they were out of a Hallmark movie. You know, all these, all these squeaky clean, suburban, perfect little men and women. And, and they were polite. As the week went on, everybody was polite. Everybody was kind. But she, she could tell she didn't quite fit in. Neither her or her, her husband. You know, they, they wore long sleeves because they didn't want questions about their tattoos. But every once in a while, you know, they'd reach for something and the sleeve would pull up and, and they'd notice one of the other couples staring at their tattoos, or, or so, uh, they'd slip and say a bad word, and there'd be this awkward silence. And so the whole week, she just thought, I, I just need to get through this and get home. Well, so the end of the week comes. They've, they've met, they've spent time with this adorable little four-month-old boy that's going to be their son. End of the week comes, everybody's getting their paperwork together, they're going to they're gonna go through this little process, and then get on a bus and head to the airport. And so every other couple with their child goes through the little process, and they get on the bus, and this couple that's telling the story, they're the last ones. And when they get to the front, they discover to their horror, someone in that country has written on their form that they're taking a four-year-old boy home, not four-month-old. And so the person at the gate looks at that and says, that child's not four. You can't take this child. And she's terrified because here they are in a foreign country. They don't have an attorney. They don't know anyone there. They know this is the child that they're supposed to take home. They don't want to leave without him. But what are they to do? The plane is going to take off. They're going to be left behind. Even if they can get all the bureaucratic mess worked out, how do they get home? And they're just in tears, both of them. And suddenly they look around and they see, they see all the other couples with their kids who've gotten on the bus and are on their way to the airport. They've all gotten off the bus. And they're all standing around and they look at them and they say, if you're not leaving, we're not leaving. Now, I got to tell you, as I'm listening to this, I'm working out in a gym. So picture sweat, muscle, weights, manly odors, right? And and when the story starts, I'm, I'm doing my exercises or whatever, and I'm thinking, oh, no. Here's another story where we're the bad guys. Uh, Okay, I was just about to delete, but I I stuck with it. And then that happened. And then that turn in the story happened. All right, so we're friends, right? Y'all aren't going to judge me. So I'm sitting here exercising, but all of a sudden, I just lost it emotionally, okay? In this manly place, I start getting all teary. And and tears are literally running down my face. And I'm like trying to hide my face because I don't want any of the guys to see it. And it's really uncomfortable, but I can't help it because it was just so beautiful. And the end of the story is that, that they got the details worked out and they ended up getting on the bus and they flew home. And, and the woman said she, you know, after a few minutes in the air, the little baby went to sleep and she got up and she walked around and she thanked every, every one of those couples. And she says, you know, we came here thinking that we were going to give a family to a child that didn't have one. And we left here having found a family of our own. Boy, that got me. And, and I just thought, that is so not what I expected. That is so not what the world expects. 
That is the opposite of self-righteousness. That's people saying, I serve Jesus, and Jesus laid down his life for me, and so you matter to me more than I matter to me. And so I don't care that you look different than I do and that you think different than I do. You are important, and I'm going to show that. And that's what we've got to do. When's the last time you did something like that for someone who had no investment in you, who had no reason to expect that of you? That should be our regular mode of operation. You know why? Not because it makes us culturally popular. By the way, once you say you're going to follow Jesus, you better give up on being one of the cool kids because it's not going to happen anymore. That's not what it's about. Cultural popularity is gone. No, we do this. We should do this. Why? Because the God we believe in became a human being and he said, you're more important to me than my own life. And that's our story. That's all there is. Our God died for us because we were more important to him than his own skin. And therefore we're saved. And therefore we cannot help but value every life because every life is that important to God.